welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute Impri New Delhi Namaste and good evening everyone good evening to people in India and good morning to people joining us from United States I am Pritika Gupta assistant director at Impri Impact and Policy Research Institute Prabhav Evam Niti Anusandhan Sansthan Nayi Delhi extend my heartiest welcome to you all to Impri hashtag for policy talk today we are here for a special talk on historical determinants of gender inequality as part of the series the state of gender equality hashtag gender gaps The series is being organized by Gender Impact Study Center at Delhi. The speakers for today are Dr. Chandan Jha and Professor Sudeep Tisarak. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Chandan Jha. Dr. Jha is an assistant professor of finance in Maiden School of Business at Limoy College. He earned a PhD in economics from Louisiana State University and MA in economics from Berkeley Institute of Politics and Economics. His research focuses on corruption, gender and finance. His papers have been published in several economics and finance journals such as Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, Journal of Population Economics to name a few. He is fellow at the Global Labor Organization and currently serves as the associate editor editor of Studies in Microeconomics and SN Business and Economics. Welcome sir. Now I would thank you sir. Now I would like to introduce to you our second speaker for today Professor Sudeep Tisari. Professor Sarangi is a professor and department head of economics at Virginia Tech. Prior joining to Virginia Tech, he has been distinguished professor of business administration at Louisiana State University and program director at the National Science Foundation. His research interests range from network theory, experimental and behavioral economics to development economics. He is a research associate of PIW Berlin, Kate University of Lyon, St. Etienne and the Lima School of Economics. He has been a consultant to organizations such as World Bank and FAO. He currently serves as the currently serves on the editorial boards of Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, Journal of Public Economic Theory and Economic Modeling. His latest book called Economics of Small Things explains the economics using everyday phenomena and has been recently released by Penguin India. Thank you sir for joining us today. We are also delighted to have Professor Govind Kelkar as chair. Ma'am is the executive director at Gender Center for Research and Innovation, Gurgaon, and chairperson at Gender Impact Study Center at Impact. Thank you, ma'am, for accept, accepting our invitation. We are also delighted to be joined by Dr. Anamika Priyadarshini and Dr. Bhuvi Dutta Panda as discussants. Dr. Priyadarshini heads research at Sakshama Initiative for What Works at Center for Catalyzing Change Bihar. Dr. Bhuvi Dutta Panda is the Associate Professor of Economics at Division of Social Sciences at University of Minnesota, Morris. Welcome, ma'am and sir. With these introductions, I would now like to request Dr. Govind Ma'am to give her opening remarks and then invite our speakers for their talk today. Ma'am, over to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a real privilege and tremendous pleasure to chair this session. Uh, as you know that um, among the fellow economists, 
uh, if you read the, I've been reading feminist economics and every time one is surprised that how economists have been really targeted uh, not taking enough gender kind of work. And here I see that uh, this gallery of very eminent economists are going to talk about very challenging topic and very interesting one. And that is the determinants of gender inequality. So, and historical determinant of gender inequality, which is very, very important. I don't know, sir, how you are going to divide the uh, kind of question of um, addressing the, the, um, uh, the subject, but I, I think it will be free flowing discussion. And later on, we can have some binding thoughts on that, key, how do we uh, concluding thoughts and other things. So this would be, I see a tremendous potential in terms of our um, think tank kind of development uh, on the issue of that in addressing the gender inequality. Because gender inequality is such a kind of mysterious subject that you see that gender inequality in cultural aspect and social aspect and economic aspect, political aspect. But, and it seems like time, immemorial, but actually it is not so. There is a historical process of that. And that historical process um, deciphering is very, very important. And that's why I particularly liked this um, uh, subject very much kind of thing which you chose very much. And I, I'm very keen to listen and learn from you. In my view, that is, uh, there are some determinant of this gender inequality, some historical and bringing to the to the current ones. And these are really the cultural construction of gender inequality. First thing I think is what are the cultural construct that um, because I did my PhD in China's political economy. And if I read uh, uh, Manusprati and Confucian tenets and uh, Virginia Woolf uh, later, and uh, particularly a history of England, uh, Trevelyan's history, then it seems that they consulted each other and they wrote uh, together and how they kind of reinforce in terms of the, uh, the cultures which, which provide for the gender inequality. Then the other thing is really that women's uh, um, discrimination in um, reproduction and production sphere that would be very, very, that is very evident. We know that whole care work debate is going on and it is not being recognized. So what is the kind of wage disparities, non-recognition of domestic work? Even the recent thing I was surprised to read yesterday's paper that in vaccination drive, um, there is only 871 women per thousand men. So even something like this, that you find what kind of discrimination that exists uh, and it starts from home and it goes to the and, uh, national and international level. Then the question is economic dependency. Lot of my life I have worked um, on uh, land rights of women in China and India. And I find that this is a total no housing, no land rights. And then we think that probably women are uh, they they can't take a decision and uh, they are backwards thinking. So, but what what decisions, there is a calculated aspect of this, where do you go? You don't have the house of your own, which Virginia Woolf called the room of your own, and you don't have any resource to fall back. And so you will be pleased to be the kind of beaten up and uh, say that, okay, sometimes justify that my husband loves me, but he also beats me. Then uh, paucity of women's voices in democratic institutions is so clear. 
kind of thing. Since how long? It is over 20 years that we have been talking about 33% representation of women in the political governance, with the exception of panchayats, which India is very well known, where now 50% representation is there. If we take Supreme Court, if we take national parliament, if we take a national, um, the, our state assembly, we don't find women more than kind of 13 to 14%. And this is Supreme Court only 4%. It is such a shame. And this is not only typical India, but global situation, but we are talking of India. So I'm taking these examples from India. Two other aspects I find were very challenging, and I hope you would address them, that appropriation of women's knowledge and power. How this knowledge and power has been appropriated to the extent of killing women in terms of taking over their knowledge. So wiping them out. And this has been, of course, in the transition to capitalist development. And this I learned by, <coughs> sorry, by studying two uh, societies, Laos, it is on the Thai and Laos border where the salt knowledge women had, and that was taken. And the other was really in South Malaysia, Bobolijan, who were the priestess. And it was the that when they asked for the sharing this knowledge, because there was a commercial development of both salt and also the Bobolijan's um, uh, administrative powers were being shared and they were being developed. And uh, then the they, the one could cook, one has to kill the Bawalijan in order to get the power, and he he became a hero. I mean, he was considered a very kind of powerful man who could kill a Bawalijan. Bawalijan was the priest and the healer, both, and also interfered or intervened in a lot of administrative measures. The, uh, village head was only second to it. My last is really adverse changes in gender norms in capitalist transition that we take from the um, from the traditional societies and we go to the modern societies and the capitalist societies and somehow this kind of thing women's autonomy freedom there is a kind of toxicity that has developed a, a toxic attitude towards this has developed and that that is continuing if you look at from indigenous society to the modern society like us or industrial development of France, Western Europe, or anywhere in India, you find that this is the kind of tremendous violence that happens. And this is the representation of, and, um, and, uh, and economist, economic concept of head of the household. I don't know from where this concept has come, head of the household. And I have critiqued this concept right from the beginning, but now I'm glad that World Bank is also deliberating whether we need the head of the household and what is the role of the head of the household, whether it is good for good for the society or it is not really uh, contributing anything. With these thoughts, I don't think that I'm going to make a kind of a speech, but I request uh, our panelists today to address some of these questions. Thank you very much, sir. So uh, um, who is going to speak first? Uh, Dr. Chandan Kumar Jha? Uh, no, Dr. Sarangi will speak first. Okay, Dr. Sarangi. Please go ahead, Dr. Saragi. Over to you. Thank you. Um, and thank you for raising a host of issues. So the way we're going to do this talk is that, <clears throat> so this is joint research that Chan and I have done. And I'm going to frame the talk. I'll just take a few minutes to frame the talk and where it is going. Then Chandan will uh, do the talk. And I think we can take uh, questions as we go along. 
Um, especially if you ask them in the chat, if I can answer the questions on chat, I will do it. If I think the question is important enough that we need to answer it, I will interrupt Chandan and he will, uh, he will address the question. So, um, and I am only happy to see that there are quite a few people that I know here. Um, I see Rajesh Mahapatra, Dr. Bidhu Mohanty, I see Manoj Das, Dr. Keshav Das. So it's very good to see all of you. Um, so uh, let me say wh what this talk is going to be about. So we are not going to talk about um, historical as in 200 years ago. We're going to think about once upon a time, there used to be hunter gatherers. And then we found agriculture. And, and there's plenty of studies which suggest that agriculture was the beginning of inequality. So our investigation is going to look at agriculture in antiquity. So we're talking about ancient past. So of course you have to take a lot of leaps of faith with us because we don't really have data from the ancient past. At the same time, when we want to take a hypothesis that deals with something from the ancient past, we must make sure that modern factors do not affect the outcome. So we, we will not go into the details of the models, but we will cover a bunch of hypotheses like hoe versus plow agriculture, transition to agriculture, uh, calorie content of crops, ancestral arable land, things like that. Uh, so we will give you an overall idea and lead you through a speculative journey. Some of these papers are already published. I think some of these papers are already published actually uh, by us or other people. Mm, and uh, not all of them are published. The other thing I want to say that this comes to a newly emerging area in economics that's gaining prominence, which is to look at culture. The idea is that culture develops and we ask why we get certain types of culture. So, right, because your culture is a very amorphous object. And the question that economists ask, like they always, why did we get this type of culture? What is the origin of this culture? And then the second step of the argument is to show that culture is persistent, okay? And once you have persistence of culture, then you use it to explain contemporary outcomes. At the same time, you must show that the contemporary outcomes were not affected by contemporary factors. They are affected by culture from the ancient past. That's the overall framework. And so with that, I will hand it over to Chandan. Thank you, Professor Sarangi. Uh, and thank you everyone uh, for the invitation. So I'm going to share my slide because I want to show you uh, um, some uh, you know, interesting facts as well as uh, uh, the paper that we are going to talk about. So can you see my screen? Yes, we can see that. Okay, all right. So uh, essentially this is a joint work with uh, Professor Sarangi and actually there is another co-author uh, on some of, some of the work that we have been doing for a couple of years now. So <clears throat> let me start by, uh, let me start by uh, uh, the outline. So this is what I'm going to do in this talk. First, I'm going to, uh, talk about and provide you some uh, facts uh, regarding gender inequality across the world. Uh, there are two key points uh, that I want you to take from there. One is that, well, gender inequality is a global phenomena. It exists everywhere. And the two is that uh, in some societies and some countries, gender inequality is way less uh, than other countries, because that is what is going to form the basis of our talk. 
because then what we are going to link it with uh, historical agricultural factors and gender norms. Uh, so we are going to talk about that. Why do we see these differences in gender inequality across different parts of the world? Where did those norms come from? And then we are going to talk about our research where uh, the first one uh, uh, titled Ancestral Ecological Endowments and Missing Women is already published in the Journal of Population Economics. And the other one we are working on currently right now, it is under review. And finally, we are going to conclude. So uh, let me first uh, talk about uh, the first thing, which is very important is that, look, gender equality or gender equity is a goal in itself, right? But there are certain advantages. There are a lot of advantages because uh, women empowerment has important consequences for economic growth and development. Uh, one place shop for this is Duffalo 2012 paper. I'm not going to go into detail, uh, but I just wanted to provide you some reference. And then yet what we see is that gender inequality exists uh, in access to education. It exists in labor markets, political representation, and even life expectancy. And I'm going to show you the evidence of all of this in the next slides. So in, the, in this first slide, I start with the education where this gender parity index is defined as female gross enrollment ratio divided by male, male uh, gross enrollment ratio. So uh, the, uh, the green line that you see there, uh, if you see a dot that lies within that green line, that means you know, there is no differences between uh, male and females. Uh, if you see a dot to the right of that line, that means women uh, are doing better than men. And if you see a dot to the left, that means you know, women are at a disadvantage. As you can see, for most lots of dots, most of dots are actually to the left uh, of the green line. That suggests that we are still not sending our daughters or women are still not uh, going to schools uh, or enrolled in school as much as men are. Yeah? The second thing is uh, gender pay gap. Now, how much less do women earn than men? So uh, for something like wage gap, this data is not available for the entire world, but here I have data for European countries mostly. And you can see that uh, the gender wage gap uh, in every country, women are paid less than men. Uh, the, the lowest difference is 1.3%. Uh, the highest difference goes to 21.7% in Estonia. It is possible that many parts of the world, this is, this is even, uh, even worse. Here, in fact, women also face a greater risk of living in poverty. So in 41 countries, women are more likely than men to live in poor households. The corresponding number of countries is only 17 for men. So you see that women are also at a greater risk of living in poverty. Here, we show you the share of women in national parliaments. Uh, they are color coded. Uh, so the red is where women are less than 20%. And you can see a lot of countries where women in parliament is less than 20%, including India, where women uh, uh, constitute less than 15% uh, of the parliament uh, as of today. Uh, then the pink color shows you between 20 to 40%. And you see that pretty much most of the countries uh, have, you know, women in parliament are less than 40%. And then there are a few countries where there is like 40 to 50%. And there's just one country where women are more than 50%. Uh, but, you know, so, so yeah, so, so that tells you the difference here. Next, female male life expectancy gap at birth. So for various reasons, women are uh, expected to live longer than men. Uh, that could be for, you know, men might be, you know, engaged in more, you know, risk-taking activities. 
they might be smoking more and you know there could be a whole lot of uh, factors that we don't want to go here but what we want to show you here is that if you again see here there is there is a you know, considerable cross-country differences in the life expectancy gap, right? So uh, you have a lot of countries where women, uh, the, this female male life expectancy gap is, you know, less than four years. And then there are many other countries where that's greater than four years, yeah? So that means women are expected to live uh, four years uh, more than men here. So again, uh, we see here is that there is, there is a, there is a large uh, differences across these different countries. And that brings us to, to the question here that, well, we saw that gender inequality exists everywhere and women are disadvantaged in you know, various walks of life uh, in every country. But the question is that why is this gender inequality so starkly different across these countries and societies? And that is what we want to, we want to talk about uh, in, in this talk. So the recent literature has actually identified that, look, the historical factors played an important role in shaping gender norms. So something that happened thousands of, thousands of years ago, and well, actually, you might argue that 30, 40,000 years ago as well, you know. So there are things that happened. Uh, for our purposes, we will keep it to, you know, agricultural practices, even that was like, you know, almost 10,000 years ago, right? So something that happens thousands of years ago, that still plays a role in, in, in explaining gender inequality that are starkly different across different countries. And there are two things that we are going to specifically look at. Specifically look at. One is gender roles. Gender roles, we are going to look at uh, female labor force participation. That would be the primary major, right? So it's possible that, you know, uh, why do women not go and work outside, right? Because many a times this female labor force participation can actually explain the gender inequality because economic contributions play a role in, in economic well-being, yeah? And so that brings us to the second part that, you know, there are also gender differences in well-being, which can be measured in various ways. Uh, one could be simply missing women or sex ratios, right? Female male sex ratios. Other could be gender inequality index that I'm going to talk about at some point. Another could be female, you know, and, you know, differences in female and male life expectancy index. And there are these different measures. So what we are going to do is that we are going to show you some of the things. So let's start with agriculture, yeah? So in this transition to agriculture, so this diamond uh, in his 1987 Discover Magazine article, he argues something very, very, uh, you know, beautifully. He says that, uh, and I'm quoting him here, uh, but the main idea was uh, diamond suggested that, look, the societies that moved to agriculture, in those societies, what happened is that now, you know, when you are a hunter-gatherer society, right, then you need to move from one place to the other place, right, in search of food. Once you have depleted the resources from one place, you move to another place, right? Uh, but when you move, then you have to carry children along with you, right? So that means you cannot carry too many children, right? You can, you know, you cannot hold like, you know, carry three children like who are like, you know, two year or one year and three year olds, right? So what happened is that in hunter-gatherer societies, women and you know, the society in general, they had to space out babies, yeah? You needed the difference between two babies at least four or five years, uh, because if you did not do that, then you know, moving would be way too difficult, yeah? So, but when you move to agriculture, now suddenly you don't have to move, right? You have this stored food. So now you could have more frequent pregnancies. So now when there was more frequent pregnancies, then what will happen? Men, men will work outside. Women, you know, 
has to stay you know inside the home one because she might be pregnant two because she has to take care of the newborns right so then that's where the norm started and what happened is that men worked outside in the fields in agricultural process while women worked inside the home so that was diamond's hypothesis and this hypothesis was proved, uh, you know, shown that, okay, this is correct by Hanson, Jensen, and Scopes Guard in a recently Journal of Economic Growth paper in 2015. And they indeed found that societies that moved to agriculture earlier, in those societies, uh, there are fewer women uh, in, in the labor force even today. And then they look at some other measures of gender inequality and they find the same thing. There is a follow-up paper, uh, you know, a similar paper like Fredrickson and Gupta, and they look at the well-being here and they find the same thing. Countries that move to agriculture earlier in those societies, uh, sex ratios are against women. They are in favor of male. So what is happening there again, you know, the role was such that male, you know, boys would work outside the home. And so more resources were devoted, devoted to them. On the other hand, uh, there, are, there are other studies and uh, the most proponent being Bosrap. Uh, and she argued uh, in 1970, she said that, look, agriculture was a matter, but, you know, another matter, you know, was the technology, the agricultural technology that existed at that time. So there are primarily two kinds of technologies, right? Uh, hoe agriculture versus plow agriculture, right? So in early stages, you know, her argument is that societies that practiced plow agriculture, so as you can see the plow, right, this is heavy, <laughs> yeah? So when you are doing this agriculture, what happens is that you have to pull this plow either without, with or without oxen, right? So, so you need significant upper body strength and that's where men had an advantage. So what happened is that the societies that used plow agriculture in those societies, men worked outside the home in the fields and women stayed home and they looked at other things, right? They did the household chores. On the other hand, societies that used hoe agriculture, in those societies, women also participated in agricultural process because in those societies, you did not really need that much physical strength, yeah? And then consistent with that, Elegiana, Elegina, Giuliano, and Nunn in a 2013 QJE paper, they show that uh, societies that whose ancestors practiced plow, in those societies, there are fewer women in the labor force and there are fewer women in parliament as well. Yeah, uh, they also have a follow-up paper in 2018 and they find the same thing. Sex ratios are also higher in favor of men in those countries that traditionally practiced, you know, uh, practiced uh, plow agriculture. So these are uh, the two, two very, very, uh, you know, important studies uh, that have been carried out in the last couple of, uh, couple of years. So now what we do is that we take up this literature and then we go into that. And that gives rise to our first paper. But before I actually go to my first paper, I want to show you something here. So if some of you want to guess that what is the difference between the left-hand side and the right-hand side uh, uh, figure here, uh, I'm not going to ask you that because Zoom thing, but you know, I don't know if you guessed it or not. Uh, but one thing that I can tell you that if you look at the left animal, right? That like, it looks violent, right? It looks violent. And the right one looks like sort of, you know, calm person, you know, cool sort of, you know, anyways. So indeed the difference is that the left one is chimpanzee and the right one is bonobo. And interestingly, the common chimpanzees, they are indigenous to, you know, regions that was not endowed with, you know, food resources. There was scarcity of resources. And 
Well, there is a severe gender inequality among them. On the other hand, bonobos, they originated from uh, south of Congo River, uh, which had abundant resources, food resources, and they have very less gender inequality. Yeah. So interestingly, uh, there, so, so there is this impact of resource environment uh, on gender inequality in primates. Yeah. Oh, by the way, uh, they are genetically very, very similar uh, to us, actually, more than 99%, just to point out. Uh, so, so just imagine how genetically similar these two are themselves, you know? So anyways, okay. Now, there's also evidence that, you know, resource scarcity impacted gender inequality in prehistory and hunter-gatherers. So what happened? So, you know, with, with this, you know, with the anthropological studies, right, where, where you do these excavations, right, and you find bones. So when, when you know, when they have uh, done this analysis with this kind of bones, what they found is that during scarce times, what happened is that men became, uh, women became shorter relative to men in times of scarcity, which should not happen because it is men's body, which is more uh, elastic with, with resources. So that suggests that even, you know, when you go like 40, 50,000 years back, right, when we were cavemen, even then, even then resource scarcity, like gender inequality existed. Yeah, we don't know whether it was because of resource scarcity, but we know that this gender inequality existed even then. And then there is this anthropological studies and they have very interesting, uh, you know, Hayden et al talks about uh, that, you know, even in hunter-gatherer societies, resource scarcity mattered, right? So Hayden here talks about that controlling the numbers was very crucial for resource scarce societies, right? Because if you did not control your number, then no one is going to survive, right? So you had to control your number, right? So that everybody can survive. And who was given this responsibility? This responsibility was given to the women who just gave birth or who was still pregnant. So this woman who just gave birth, she was to get rid of the baby. Now you could imagine what kind of control you needed over the women, what kind of gender inequality you needed to establish that a woman is agreeing to, to, you know, to kill her own baby. Yeah. So that kind of, you know, uh, things, uh, you know, led to, you know, resource scarcity and gender inequality. So what we do is that, oh, by the way, there is also evidence of uh, current uh, resource scarcity, which you could talk about poverty and gender inequality. In the interest of time, I'm going to skip that, but there's a lot of evidence that, you know, during times of resource scarcity, uh, you know, even today, women are, uh, you know, or girl children get even less, you know, uh, nutritious food or share of nutritious food than did before, or they are taken out of school before then, 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 then the boys will be taken and so on. Okay, so that gives rise to our first paper, uh, Ancestral Ecological Endowments and Missing Women, uh, which was published in 2019 uh, in the Journal of Population Economics. So what is the, what is the idea here? The idea is very simple uh, that we are saying. We are saying that, look, does ancestral endowment of ecological resources continue to affect modern gender inequality? Why are we, why are we posing that, that, that question? The question is that, well, imagine that we are six people, right? Four people or six people, and we are given like one slice of pizza. Well, we have to fight, right? Who gets the pizza? But we are four people and we have 20 pizzas. We don't need to fight anymore, right? So the idea was that in the societies that did not have enough resources, societies that faced greater resource scarcities, in those societies, there would be a greater bargaining in the for the division of intra-household resources. And 
men had an advantage because of gender differences in physical strength, right? Men were stronger, so they had an advantage in that. And therefore, uh, the norm will, you know, become in such a way that, you know, men would get greater share of resources. And this eventually became a norm and that exists even today. So the question is that why do we choose missing women? Why don't we choose other major of uh, gender equality? The answer to that is that, you know, some preference has been a major cause for missing uh, women in countries like India. Uh, if you actually look at, uh, you know, uh, in India and China, if you compare that, you know, this is very clear uh, that, you know, gender inequality impacts sex ratio uh, because, you know, of the strong sun preference. So, for example, if I was going to talk about Gupta 2006 paper, they find that in China, <coughs> the probability of the second child being a son increases by 41% if the firstborn was a daughter. So if your firstborn was a son, good, you needed a son and you already have a son, doesn't matter. But if you had a first if your first was a daughter, then the probability of the second child being son increases by 41%. And that increases by an astounding 111% if both your first children were girls. So that is clearly indicating the sex selective abortion. Similar thing is found in Jha et al. of paper, and they find the similar thing. Uh, Sen, Amat Sen had this, uh, you know, now a classic paper where he compared uh, India and China with, with comparable, economically comparable sub-Saharan African countries. And he found that more than 100 million women were missing. Uh, well, again, this is not just the India-China phenomena. According to World Bank report, 6 million women are missing every year from the world. Out of that, 23% are never born because of sex-selective abortion. And 10%, 20%, and 38% are missing in early childhood, reproductive years, and above the age of 60, respectively. Meaning, even when women becomes like, let's say, you know, 50 years old, 60-year-old, even when she is a mother, she is a grandmother, she is still not provided the same kind of medical facilities than, for example, a grandfather would be provided or a, or, or, or a father will get. Yeah. So that <laughs> leads to missing women. So uh, if you look at it, you know, sometimes people might argue that, hey, as the society is getting more educated, some of these problems will subside. Well, not really, because if you look at China and India here, in India, sex ratio today is worse than it was in 1980. Yeah, actually, it, is, it has become worse since 2011 or something that we have seen, even though the level of education in India has increased just so much. Yeah. So, we are measuring, as I said, gender inequality is measured as a uh, number of females per thousand males in the population. We adjust it for migration because we know that, uh, you know, there has been a lot of migration since 1500. And what we are trying to get at is uh, the cultural formation, right? Uh, so when people move, they take their culture with themselves. And, uh, uh, and so it's important to, to, to adjust for migration. And you know, as I said, gender inequality and preference for boys has been documented uh, to to have you know have an impact on missing women. So that shows gender inequality. What is uh, a bit uh, tricky is how do you actually measure the ecological endowments, right? How do you measure something that happened you know thousands of years ago? So this is what we do. We actually take this measure from a uh, Gaylor and Ojok paper uh, in twenty sixteen uh, in American Economic Review. Uh, so what do we measure? We measure that as average potential millions of kilo cal kilocalorie hectare per year, right? So how many calories could you produce? 
okay, which is based on pre-Columbian crops. Why pre-Columbian crops? Because again, you know, uh, since 1500, right, there has been a lot of migration, right? I am from India, right now I'm sitting in the United States, right? So uh, there has been a lot of crops uh, that have been, uh, you know, that have gone from one continent to the other continent, right? Uh, similarly, people have moved. Uh, so there has been this cultural transmission as well. We want to, we want to minimize uh, uh, any kind of bias caused by that to the extent possible. And therefore, uh, we are looking at only pre-Columbian crops under rain-fed and low input conditions. Why low and why rain-fed and low input conditions? Because you know, since then, now we have a lot of technological advancement, right? A lot of land that was potentially useless uh, thousand, two thousand years ago, you could not use that for agriculture. Today, you can use them because you know the the modern irrigation technology, for example, allows that. Yeah. So, so again. Uh, uh, what is happening here? It's again. So let me let me repeat this one more time because this is going to be very important. The endowment the, the endowment of ancestral resources is measured as potential means it's not actual. It's the maximum that you could produce uh, millions of kilocalorie per hectare per year, right? So societies that could produce more uh, that would have less resource scarcity. Societies that could produce less that would have lower resource scarcity. And there is quite a bit of evidence that uh, the world's climate has been fairly stable for past one to 2000 years. And therefore, you know, we could extrapolate this uh, to the historical times. Again, as long as we, we keep, uh, you know, as long as we, uh, we keep it base, uh, you know, solely uh, depend on climate like temperature, radiation and moisture, we do not uh, take into account and we keep it limited to the rain fed and low fed input conditions, right? So we are going to keep the uh, um, irrigation technologies uh, out. Yeah? So when we do that, this is the result that I want to show you here. Uh, what we see here is that this average potential, uh, and I'm going to highlight the part that I want you to see here, is this part here. What we see here is that uh, even with the with the lowest estimates, uh, what it suggests that societies that could produce one million dollar one million calorie kilocalorie more per hectare in those societies, uh, there are approximately six more females per thousand men. Now that's that that that's that's a significant number, and as you can see, we control for a lot of variables. But just to make sure that we are very very careful to control for institutional variables that belong to today, right? We want to make sure that these variables are not confounding our results. So we are controlling for democracy. We are controlling for legal origins. We are controlling for uh, communism. We are controlling for uh, religious composition, and we find uh, that this result still still significant. Ah uh, well. If you are still worried that well, I'm looking at we are looking at something that happened thousand years ago, right, or or two thousand years ago, and it's possible that there are some specific factors related to country level, right? Maybe uh, some countries were different. There was some omitted variables that we don't know about, right? And that omitted variable is responsible for both these things: gender inequality as well as the potential caloric yield. So then, you know, our results might not be reliable. So what we do is that in order to deal with that, we go to India and we did that analysis controlling for not the country fixed effects, but here, look here, we are controlling for the state fixed effects. Meaning now we do not even have to worry about Bihar versus Punjab, right? I am actually, I am in that sense comparing districts within Punjab now, right? Because I'm able to 
control for the uh, you know uh, uh, state fixed effects. And even then, what we find is that in India as well, right? We find the similar result in India. Actually, that result is a bit stronger. There are eleven more females per thousand males in in districts that can produce one million kilocalorie per hectare per you know per year. Um, more than the other society, yeah. So, so we see that uh, this is what we see. We also used, by the way, other uh, other variables, and we found the same result. Then I'm going to skip this slide just in the interest of time because I have still have a lot of ground to cover here. But this is, but I'm, I'll tell you the story here. What is happening? So remember, at the beginning, we talked about that there are two ways uh, that you know this uh, these historical factors could impact gender inequality, right? One is that it could impact gender roles, right? Whether women work outside or not, right? And the other is that they can actually impact gender role, gender well-being without impacting gender roles. Yeah. So in this table, what we provide evidence of is that uh, if you see here, what is happening here is that there is no evidence of a relationship between uh, caloric output and female labor force participation. Yeah. Uh, and even when we control for the female labor force participation, the relationship between this variable and the uh, sex ratio remains significant. So basically, the story here is that uh, in the historical times, the resource scarcity impacted women's gender inequality without really impacting their without really impacting their female labor force participation. So the point being here is that even with the economic contribution, if you see that okay, women are making economic contribution and the gender inequality does not go away, it could be because once the gender inequality is established, right, economic contribution might take some time before gender inequality actually completely vanishes. So that is the point to take away from here. With that, I'm going to now move to my second paper here, okay, to our second paper. So the second paper uh, is under review right now. So in this second paper, what we are, what we are actually arguing that, look, there are all these papers, including ours, right? We looked at transition to agriculture. We looked at uh, plow use. And then we looked at, you know, that, you know, the ecological resource endowments, right? But all these factors, right, are associated with something very, very fundamental, right? And that fundamental thing is the availability of land itself, right? What kind of land you had, that is probably going to have an effect on all of this variable, right? That is going to be correlated with all these things, yeah? So then what we hypothesize in this paper is that the abundancy of arable land in antiquity played a role in shaping gender norms, right? So how much land you had to begin with that had an impact and gender norms. That is what we are hypothesizing here. Yeah. So our primary mechanism here is that we are going to give you a couple of mechanisms, but we are going to primarily focus on this mechanism, which is labor force mechanism. Our argument is that societies that had more land where you could potentially till, right, where you could do agriculture, right. So if you need, if you have more land, if you are going to use more area, you are going to need more hands. Right. And when you are going to need more hands, then, you know, a husband might not be enough. Right. And, you know, maybe one child might not be enough to work in the fields. And so the women, right, she also goes to the fields and she also works with the fields and she actively contributes to the agricultural process. Yeah. So when she does that, she is contributing. Right. She is contributing to the output, uh, a visible contribution. And therefore, she is getting gaining some kind of economic empowerment, and that would lead to better outcomes for her, and that would lead to a lower gender inequality. 
Yeah, and then we are going to link it with our previous paper, the resource scarcity mechanism. As we talked about, more resources going to be positively correlated with better resources, right? And that should be our secondary channel. Yeah. Uh, then there are some other literature, very interesting things. One is that scarcity of land may places a premium on male brawn. What happens is that if you have less land, you need to work harder. You might need some kind of other technologies that need that are more labor intensive. By labor intensive here, I mean physical strength that requires more physical strength, and therefore, uh, you know, male uh, male uh, uh, you know um, men become more valuable. And another thing is that societies that had fewer lands in those societies, you also have, uh, you know, the threat of war, uh, uh, you know, from uh, the, the neighboring societies. And therefore, again, the men was more valuable there because of, you know, because they can, they can fight with, with them. So, so that's the idea, but uh, with, with our first mechanism here, consistent with our first mechanism, there's a lot of papers that actually show that if women contribute uh, to economic, uh, you know, economically, then, you know, it, it leads to uh, increasing their bargaining power and their health outcomes. So again, uh, this will be important as, as we go to the next part here. Okay. So the idea is that, you know, once this behavior, right, once such norms were established, they became ingrained in culture, right? And they continue to influence influence women's labor force participation and their health outcome even today. Now that you know thousands of years have gone by, and those situations might not even exist anymore. But once the norm is set, it, it takes a long time to, to, to go away. So we are going to use gender inequality index uh, to measure gender inequality. In this case, it comes from United Nations Development Program. And as you could see here, that uh, here, you know. It includes three, three dimensions, health, empowerment, and labor market. Health includes maternal mortality ratio and adolescent fertility rate. Empowerment includes female and male population with at least secondary education and female and male shares of parliamentary shares, and then female and male labor force participation rates. Uh, what is done is that there is some kind of interaction between all these things variable that is taken into account. And then an index is created called gender inequality index that is going to take values uh, in the range of zero to one, with one indicating more inequality. Yeah, so that's the idea here. If you want to see here, how does countries fare uh, in this gender inequality index? This is what we see. <clears throat> what we see here is that uh, 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 that you know gender inequality is less in, for example, in in these European countries, uh, US, uh, and then it is going to be quite high in here in Asian countries, including India, China, and Pakistan, and then then some African countries as well. Yeah, so that that gives you uh, a picture here. Okay, now how do we measure the arable land in antiquity? So we take this measure of arable land in antiquity. We take this measure. Uh, with uh, from Elegiana, Giuliano, and Nunn. That data comes from Elegiana, Giuliano, and Nunn. That's a QJE 2013 paper. What they do is that they basically uh, look at, so for example, let's say in the United States, there are some people who are from German origin, right? So what they will do is that they will identify where the German people came from within the Germany. Once they identify their ethnic origin, they are going to look at a land within 200 kilometers uh, radius, 200 kilometers radius of that. And then they are going to look at whether that land is suitable to the cultivation of six major, major crops. And then uh, they are, 
So, so that's how, uh, then what they are going to do is that they will take that land and then they know what kind of ethnicities are represented in the United States, for example, in what proportion. And so the ancestral land suitable to agriculture will be a weighted average of the different ethnic origins uh, that live in the United States uh, and what kind of uh, arable land they had. Uh, what we also do is that we are going to use another major that I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because that is our secondary secondary major here. That is going to be migration adjusted potentially arable land. Uh, the advantage of this land is that instead of looking at only six crops, it is going to look at 21 major crops. Uh, so it is a bit broad. Uh, and then we are arguing that uh, we are going to adjust it for migration, obviously, right? Because as I said, you know, um, it's not the today's population that should be counted, but it's you know the population that was you know native before before uh, the Colombian exchange or before you know 1492 to be to be more specific. We want to we want to focus on that, and that would be used as other measure of availability of arable land in antiquity. Yeah. Okay. Now let me show you the results here. But before I show you the result, let me show you two very simple graphs. And these two simple graphs will actually tell you what we are doing, what we are hypothesizing. So in the left-hand side, well, actually, let me start with the right-hand side here, OK? In the right-hand side variable, what you see is that ancestral arable land is significantly, you know, is upward, right, positively associated with female-male labor force participation gap, meaning in countries where the ancestor had more arable land, in those countries, there are more women working in the fields. Uh, <clears throat> relative to countries which have less land. So that is our mechanism, right? So you see the strong relationship. And because of that, uh, when you come to the left <clears throat> figure, you see that greater arable land is associated with lower gender inequality. That is all we wanted to do in this paper and we want to, we want to convince people in that paper. So now the same thing we are showing here is in table forms here, uh, what we see is that ancestral arable land is negatively associated with gender inequality, and that remains significant when we control for plow use, when we control for years since uh, Neolithic transition. And I also want you to pay attention here on this variable here, when we control for the pre-1500 crop yield, which is the which 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 uh, uh, takes care uh, of the of the ancestral uh, endowment. Okay. So so when we do that. Uh, and I also want to point out here is that in addition to that, we have control for a lot of variables, including share of agriculture in GDP, industry in GDP, religious fractionalization, democracy, legal origins, communism, right? So we control for all these variables that might potentially confound our results. Next, what we show same thing here in uh, the, the ancestral arable land is positively associated with female labor force participation across countries. Uh, again, that is significant even when we control for a bunch of variables, uh, which we just talked about. Yeah, And finally, when we control this female labor force participation, what we see that the relationship between ancestral arable land and gender inequality goes away. So that, that provides uh, you know, uh, some evidence in support of our hypothesis that the relationship that you see between ancestral arable land and gender inequality index, uh, that is caused by you know, a greater female labor force participation, yeah? So that was uh, our main result. Again, <clears throat> I'm going to skip this one because I recognize I don't have more than five or 10 minutes here. 
So I'm going to skip that slide here because it was just, uh, you know, it was just talking about uh, summarizing results. What we also wanted to do is that we also wanted to look at uh, the, the components of this gender inequality index separately. Yeah. So in health dimension, as we talked about, it's adolescent birth rate, which is number of births per thousand women of ages 15 and 19. Maternal mortality rate is the number of maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. Uh, and we know about uh, you know, share of women in parliament and female male education gap and labor market dimension. So what do we see here? What we see here is that, look here, what we see here is that ancestral arable land is negatively associated with both maternal mortality rate and adolescent birth rate, yeah? So, but it is not, it is not significantly associated with women in parliament and education gap. It is again, significantly associated with labor market dimension, in other words, labor force participation gap, okay? So I will talk about this uh, a little later, actually, but I want you to here uh, remember that ancestral arable land impacts health dimension and the labor force market participation, labor force dimension, but it does not impact empowerment dimension. Why is that happening? We have an explanation of that. We'll talk about that. Another thing that I want you to, uh, another thing that I want to make sure here is that this ancestral arable land uh, you know what, actually I'm going to come to that. So, so I'm, going, I'm not going to talk about it right now. I'm going to come to that. Okay, so <clears throat> now you might be worried that again, the results that I showed you, right? That might be a result of some kind of omitted variable, right? Some kind of difference that existed between these countries, right? Then, which is still persisting. And those differences are the ones actually that is impacting gender inequality, right? And and ancestral arable land both, but that not because ancestral arable land is actually impacting gender inequality. So in order to do that, what we do is that we are going to look at, uh, we are going to use the data from World Value Survey. Uh, and in the World Value Survey, they are going to ask people question. When jobs are scarce, men should have a greater right to a job than women. Do you disagree or do you agree? Yeah, so as you can see, it is a zero one variable, but there is a logical uh, <clears throat> ordering here. Uh, similarly, they ask another question. On the whole, men make better politicians than women do. Strongly disagree, disagree, agree, and agree strongly. Yeah. And finally, whether a woman is a part of the labor force or not. So when we do that, now what happens is that we are able to control for the country dummies, right? So now we are able to address the concerns that, well, our results could have been driven due to some kind of omitted factor uh, that we do not observe, but that are you know, strongly correlated with the, with the uh, country characteristics, right? Uh, or you know, specific to countries. So what we do is that when we do that, we still find that people you know, <clears throat> who come to the countries, right, where there is greater ancestral arable land, right? They are less likely to agree with the statement that men make better political leaders. They are also less likely to agree with the statement that when jobs are scarce, men should have more right to a job. Yeah. So what we see is that the, even the attitude regarding gender norms is, is uh, um, <clears throat> in favor of women in societies that had more arable land you know, during antiquity, yeah? And we also have this weak evidence of, uh, you know, there is a greater female labor force participation as well in societies uh, which had uh, greater ancestral arable land, in greater ancestral arable land, okay? All right. Then uh, we also looked at, by the way, some other measures of gender inequality, and we find the same thing. Uh, 
this uh, you know ancestral arable land is positively associated with female left uh, female male life expectancy gap at birth that sort of relates to the the health argument and it is also positively associated with gender development index which is gendered uh, which is human development index for female divided by human development index for male so even when we use different measures of gender inequality we find the same same result okay all right so uh, <clears throat> what we find here is that uh, availability of arable land in antiquity played a role in shaping gender norms, which promote female labor force participation. And that's how they, they resulted in better reproductive health outcomes for women. This still impacts today. Now, the question that if this really led to gender norms, why doesn't it also impact empowerment measures? Why does it only impact labor force participation? Why does it only impact health outcomes? Well, the idea actually, if you think about it, it's not really that uh, that counterintuitive. It's, it's actually very intuitive. So you go back 1,000, 2,000 years ago, right? And you need, you know, uh, you have abandoned arable land. You needed more women to work in the fields, right? Yeah. So what will happen? In order for women to work in the fields, they needed to be healthy, right? They needed to be provided with nutritious food, you know, so that they can gain strength after, you know, having given birth to a baby, right? So that they can return to the field sooner. Yeah. So that's why you provided them with the resources that resulted in better health outcomes for them. But you did not really need them to be more educated to work in fields. Well, in fact, education is probably not uh, that kind of concept than anyways. Also, you did not need women to be, you know, uh, the head of the you know village right at that time whatever it was called you know in order to be in order to work more effectively in the field so what happened is that the norm was made in such a way that it promoted women female labor force participation for that health was important and women were given you know uh, you know things that would improve their health outcomes but nothing that would actually make them empowered yeah so that was the that was the idea that's what we find all right, I have four more minutes. I think I'm doing quite well. I know I'm going fast, uh, but I did have a lot of ground to cover here. Okay, now the question here is, and now when we are talking about other papers, other papers do the similar thing to provide evidence that we are actually talking about culture. Well, what about this? Could it be possible, right, that the effect that we observe is not because of culture, but it is because of today's arable land. It is possible, for example, that in the societies that today have more arable land, in those societies, more women are working in the field today, and it didn't really happen in the past. Well, let's see here. What we are doing here is that we are doing a horse race between current land and ancestral arable land. So in this specification, let's see here, when you put them together, right? So there is current potential arable land and there's ancestral arable land, and I'm controlling for this counting in dummies here. And what we see here, that it is the ancestral arable land that can impact gender inequality index, maternal mortality rate, and the adolescent birth rate, and labor force participation gap. Yeah. <clears throat> Today, on the other hand, today's potential arable land that is not significantly associated with gender inequality index today. It is not associated with health dimension. It is not associated with empowerment dimension. Only thing that is associated with is labor force participation, which makes sense, right? Today's arable land should also, you know, uh, you know, uh, promote women's labor force participation. But when it comes about other factors, right, gender equality index or health dimensions, the norms have already been set. 
you know and now for now it's norms that is more important that is more importantly determining gender inequality than actually the current or today's land yeah that is the point to take away from here all right now given that we know this all these four variables and i started this paper with this that you know this arable land is the complementary input to all these historical factors right so we want to see okay which of these are actually you know more important and so what i do in this in this table is that i simply put all these variables together and i am seeing that okay which one is important and which one is not and then let's see if you let's start with gender inequality index ancestral arable land is the only one that is significantly associated with with gender inequality index maternal mortality rate same thing it's the only ancestral arable land that is significantly associated with that uh, adolescent birth rate interestingly uh, ancestral plow use is also significantly associated with uh, adolescent birth rate uh, but ancestral arable land as as you can see it is associated with all these three then when we talk about uh, empowerment dimensions uh we find there are two variables that is significantly associated with that uh but only education gap one is the years since transition to agriculture and and the crop yield that measures the resource environment and uh, uh and finally for the labor force participation gap again ancestral arable land is significant transition to agriculture is significant and the crop yield you know seems to be significant as well so what we see is that many of these variables can explain one or more of you know more dimensions of gender inequality today but the one that remains more uh, you know uh, you know uh, the most significant is actually the availability of arable land which again is pretty pretty intuitive right because this is associated with every single factor that has been provided by the literature including ours paper okay so then well what we argue uh, you know the idea is that what we know is that agricultural factors did play a role in shaping gender norms and these norms continue to affect women's well-being as well as their uh, their roles right their uh, uh, roles in the society long after these factors these norms are gone uh, it is important united nations sustainable development goals i think that's number 5 uh, that recognizes the importance of gender inequality uh and i'm putting gender inequality gender equality is a fundamental human right that must be pursued to ensure a peaceful prosperous and sustainable world um now what about what can we do right i mean you know uh, these things the norms are established right they happened thousands of years ago so what are the policy implications the idea is that norms are sticky and not static now that we know that norm plays an important role then we know that just providing economic contribution and economic opportunities might not get rid of gender inequality uh, in, in you know but but that will help obviously right so what we know is what we know is that we we we, we might also need some kind of awareness so one of the ways you could create awareness is that affirmative actions right so for example bmen at all they find that um, when women are provided you know quotas so for example in india right they are actually using india's india's data so what happens here is that uh, in india when women were given uh, uh, reservation right affirmative uh, quotas in in uh, panchayat elections right so what happens is that when first time they are they are they are the they are mukhiya right they are, they are they are mukhiya for the first time then they are mostly doing what you know their husbands are telling them who were most most of the time they were actually you know uh, mukhiya before ex mukhiyas right and sometimes you know it might be uh, a new person anyways 
uh, but second time what happens once she has learned during the first time from the second time the women mukhya actually starts taking decisions and she is able to show some effect so that actually weakens the stereotype regarding gender roles right so uh, now imagine that if you ask the same question uh, after 10 years a woman has been mukhya and then you ask the people the same question do you think that men make better political leaders than women more people will say no than they did before yeah uh, another thing would be that you know uh, use of technology and infrastructure that allows women to do other things in fact there was, there was an interesting paper that showed that the tv you know when women are watching tv they become more empowered just by watching tv yeah so those things because so, so what is tv doing there tv is actually providing them with this some kind of awareness right so they are bound by these kind of norms and this awareness is actually not contributing anything to them economically but they are they are making them aware right and norms can be you know one of the ways that we can change the norms is you know creating this awareness finally employment opportunities will help right because when women get this economic contribution that improves their bargaining power right and that will help as well so with that uh well i am i will finish it thank you very much and uh well we'll be happy to answer any questions anything uh before we come to questions can we request uh, the discussion to say uh, um uh, give their uh, inputs or give their thoughts on this yes yes ma'am yes please so but uh, sudipta sir would you like to add anything i thought you will add no no i think ramin has uh, we can go to the discussions i think right. he has covered uh, i think he has covered a uh, lot of ground uh, it might have been too fast Uh, so we should let the discussion talk and then we can try to answer some questions i do have to say that i have to leave in about 20 minutes no problem so please listen to all of our discussion center so dr panda discuss and then probably then professor may give uh, floor to professor sarangi right so i would request dr panda to come and uh, has his thoughts uh, uh, thank you uh, thank you very much uh, dr kumar for inviting me uh thank you chandan and professor sarangi for your fascinating presentation and fascinating research okay so uh i must understand it is very important to understand the roots of gender inequality and what are the uh, the societal norms that has been established historically and that has been carried forward because remember we stay in a collectivist society we are norm conform you know we are social norm conforming individuals and we carry forward those uh you know like norms for a long time it's very difficult to change those uh, go away or like distract from them so having said that this is very important research to understand what are the roots of it so i'm going to briefly summarize what the research has been what are the important research questions and then i have couple of questions one is more of a statistical in nature one is more policy related that that's going to i'm i'm, I'm going to ask so the first one is uh, the first uh, research question was does ancestral uh, endowment of ecological resources continue to affect modern gender inequality particularly the issue of missing women and what the authors argue is that the male favoring norms have been established in societies that ex experience resource scarcity uh, what do we mean by that the historical the idea that society that experienced resource scarcity fewer resources were available and as a result of that there was intense bargaining between the male and the female and the, the male had a upper hand because 
you know, because of the physical prowess they have, because they can, in terms of labor supply in the agricultural lands, that's provided them an upper hand, that established the rules of a uh, male conforming social norms that we have been carrying forward for a long time. And that has been explaining this modern day uh, gender inequality. And the, the second uh, question that the presenters examine is that, does historical availability of arable lands explain the modern gender day, uh, modern day gender inequality? And they explain it via two channels. Again, the social norms and cultural norms play a bigger role here. The first channel was that uh, the female labor force participation, you know, like the how the availability of labor, you know, like abundant arable land resulted in increased labor force participation historically. And second, how it also reduced the resource constraint argument that they addressed in the first paper. So that's what they have been arguing here. So the first idea is that, okay, if there is a uh, more available of historical arable land structure that allows that more laborers are going to be required. So the labor force is not, it's not going to be confined or constrained to the only male labor force. There'll be more hands will be required. As a result, historically, what we have seen is more labor force participation in the agriculture. And that established a norm of female getting more economic opportunity. And that has led to uh, the participation historical over the period of time development of here you know, like a labor for, you know, women participating more in the labor force. And the second thing is the same, similar to the uh, first paper argument, which is basically saying that more labor, uh, more availability of arable lands historical means is that less resource constraint. So if there is less resource constraint, there is not going to be a, you know, like, you know, it's not going to be has a uh, resource constraint doesn't put a downward pressure on the female in the bargaining power. So the, 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 there's not going to be more constraint on the bargaining power for the female. And uh, you know, that results in more uh, equitable distribution of economic resources uh, over, overall. So you know, this is the basic summary of the paper. So one of the thing, uh, there are two important things I would really uh, like to argue having summarized the paper in quickly. Uh, the first one is that which is statistical in nature and commenting on that. I looked at that historical factors do contribute excellent. There has been a multiple robustness checks that Chandan and Professor Sarangi has controlled, you know, historical variables. What, uh, you know, like explain the modern day inequality. Uh, statistically, there is a missing link I see. Is there any way subject to data availability? Is there is a persistence of gender inequality? For example, can we establish that uh, these historical factors does explain historical gender inequality and then historical factors explain modern day gender inequality because that is going to establish the persistence argument in a better way. So for example, can we explain that uh, the pre-Columban era data is actually resource constrained data is actually explaining the gender inequality that exist, that exist in the maybe early 19th century or 1960s, and that also be the same thing in the 2013. So that's going to establish the persistence argument in a much better way. Uh, the second thing is that as Chandan actually highlighted quite a bit is, you know, like there is opportunity we need to give, you know, cultures are static, uh, but they're not static, but they're sticky. It's very difficult to go by. So one of the things 
you know, like, again, it's beyond the scope of the paper, because when we write economics paper, we are very limited by space. But one of the things we need to think about is the incentive structure. It's not about the laws, it's also the incentives. Because remember, one of the things where we have found why the results, we have not found educational gaps because over the period of time, because of the incentive structures, the educational gap has improved in India, as well as Bangladesh, in many of the countries, because the you know, whether it's direct gas transfer or maybe giving bicycle to girls to attend schooling enrollment, that has done. So what kind of incentive structure can be given so that rather than just fighting with the laws, we can improve, uh, reduce the gender inequality? Thank you. Let me quickly address both questions. So, you know, the first point that you raise about statistical um, issue about what happened in the past, I mean, that unfortunately, if we could get data at the country level, we, we have thought about that question. Unfortunately, to show that this is true, another, you know, 200 years ago, we would need data from 200 years ago. And as far as we know, that is currently not available. If anybody has ideas about that, that would be great. Uh, in terms of uh, incentives, absolutely, as you correctly pointed out. Um, so one of the things we talk about is affirmative action. If we think about reducing gender pay gaps, things like that, then you can incentivize. But I, I mean, personally, I feel that there is a, a much bigger role to be played um, you know, by information and awareness. Incentives will drive behavior, um, you know, so that is absolutely true. But uh, I think it's educating men that's more important and making men aware about these issues is more important uh, at some level. Because uh, as some of the people here in the chat have also pointed out, that that's always been one big impediment. So uh, that's, that's my simple response. Sir, yes, since we're talking about... Uh... Yes. Arjun, you want to say something? Otherwise, we can hear from Anamika uh, and then probably... Uh, yes, uh, ma'am, I was just thinking to add a, a more statistical question if, uh, because Anamika, more of what Dr. Panda added. That, Sarangi, uh, uh, what do you think that uh, the newer uh, uh, methods like RCT or others, which is more prominent now, uh, would be their role in this kind of analysis because uh, we are looking also to the availability of data, uh, like more of the disaster research or others, uh, or wherever we have to make decision, they, they say that given the constraint of data, now you have to look forward. And uh, my other question was that, so which software did you run all the regressions, just as a student question, these two things on the, just the method part. So we use data. And the question yes. that you're asking is about uh, causal inference. Um, so, you know, um, there are, of course, there are several uh, modern techniques. Um, I, I mean, I think uh, RCT is, of course, one way to generate data, but I think Bibu's question was about older data, which is not available. So RCT will not generate that. But yeah, I mean, one could try uh, things like regression discontinuity design. Uh, RCT, of course, can be tried to look at gender norms and people use RCT. But as we all know, our cities are not cheap. Uh, they're very expensive. So um, the other thing to exploit is a regression discontinuity design. If there is a variation in the policy or the variation rollout, then uh, you can use that to make uh, causal inferences. So I will, yes. just add, I will just add one more question to uh, Dr. Jadar. Uh, so you used a lot of panel uh, data for districts, controlling for districts, sub-national level, even 
going further to increase the observation side and also controlling for other factors. Did you also had this kind of exercise for other parts of the world or let's say Bangladesh or US or maybe Nordic countries because they are very strong. So if you're looking into the uh, local level analysis of this region, what about let us say Japan, China or, or European nation? What are the differences do you think looking just at the data? And I also yeah, so so for that, you know, so for that, what we do is that, you know, for so so one of the papers we do it for India because missing women is more of a concern for India and China, and uh, you know, India has better data available than China does. Uh, plus, China has these two child policies and the stuff that might have also changed a lot of stuff. So 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 there is a clear cut reason that why we chose India for missing women, right? Um, for the other paper, as you can see, for the other paper, we are using data from the entire world for, you know, from World Value Survey. So for the other paper, we have data for about 70 countries and we are using district level analysis for those 70 countries. Yeah. Uh, of course, we can't do panel analysis in this kind of paper because the arable land is what it is, right? That's what it was 2000 years ago. That's what it is today. So you, so that, that is time invariant, right? So, so you can't, you can't do that. Right, right. So without wasting any time, uh, let me go to Dr. Priyadarshini. I'm yes. joining us from Patna. Yes. Um, are you ready? Yes, I am. Okay, please yes, go ahead. Please, please go ahead. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Chandan. Uh, it was really very fascinating and interesting presentation. And uh, I thought the way you captured like a kind of wide range of across the globe, what are the different indicators on what, which indicator, how it is. And uh, thanks to uh, Vibhu because he summarized it and I'm not going to repeat it. I really thought that your recommendations are very helpful and uh, especially for policies, it will be really, really uh, crucial. Uh, and Vibhu has already summarized, so I will not uh, you know, try to summarize it. I will rather share my reflection. And I thought, uh, I heard a lot about research that make attempt to focus on, let's say, seemingly logical. That's what my overall perception that uh, uh, your, your analysis and also the kind of research, the specific research that you refer to, we're probably focusing more on, and I'm sorry, I, I'm not an economist. I come from gender and development background. So I have a different perception to look at things. And I will not go into, you know, okay, to establish things or go for our city, especially when we are talking about gender, I'll be really skeptical about it. Because you know, uh, there was one point when in your second paper, you were saying that uh, uh, if uh, husband, if we, uh, if we could envision agriculture, labor intensive agriculture, then it might not be enough for the husband. Then the child, and I'm sure you're talking about male child, might have to go to the field to do labor. And then even if that is not possible, then women has to do. But I'm surprised because women have been doing agriculture and maximum agrarian work is done by women in the in India, at least for sure. Majority of agrarian work is done by women. But then it seems like and it's, it's widespread, actually. We are still impaired by the, you know, the perception that was kind of uh, established by the colonial regime when European travelers and European uh, officials were writing about Indian women, they glaringly, they clearly failed to see what women are doing at home. In, 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 and Tirthankar Roy, historian Tirthankar Roy talks about domestic collectives where women were working, engaged in lots of, uh, you know, 
uh, crafts work and lots of other things. But then it's very important, I think, reference of ha Francis Hamilton Buchanan, uh, who came uh, in early 19th century and did the statistical survey of uh, first Madras and then Bihar. And he, when he writes about uh, the workers, he writes man, and sometimes he writes his wife. Like if I, my PhD is on uh, uh, 19th century Bihar's home-based workers, so I had to, you know, carefully go through Buchanan's document, uh, Buchanan's statistical surveys report. And after like, you know, you go, you skim through 20, 30 pages and then you find that man and his family, man and his wife and, and children, but otherwise man is the worker. And that is why, how we have designed ourselves, we have trained ourselves. And that's why I'm saying that it, it seems logical, but probably it is not logical. And we are failing to see that. And also when you talk about economic, engaging women in, you know, economic contribution of women, there also there is a serious problem. I mean, I if you talk about India, our NSS is not recognizing domestic work or work done for consumption, personal consumption as economic activity. And that is another reason. And, and if you look at, you know, I just thought that overall, um, there was too much emphasis about, over socio-cultural rationale and reasons. And we probably your paper would have been more fascinating for me if you would have added a more from a little bit more from political economy perspective, historical perspective as well. Historical definitely you have you have definitely provided you know ample evidence from history and it is really fascinating that it's a, it's a huge landscape. But I really thought that political economy and historical, for instance, let's say even if we talk about in let, let's say you were talking about uh, agriculture and how plow and etc. But then if you look at origin of patriarchy and there are a lot of research. Kristen Delphi wrote it back in 660s and Greta Lerner had has been talking about it. Back in, these are like 60s, 70s, 80s scholars. And they have been referring to Engels. And most of the uh, research done on origin of patriarchy or origin of uh, gender-based discrimination, they go back to Engels. They either, you know, dis disprove it or improvise it or, or kind of support it. So I think that uh, maybe we, we could look at that, that how the concept of private property evolved with agriculture, and that is very important. Then, then another scholar is uh, Lessie, and she talks about that how uh, the rule that you cannot marry your mother or sister or your daughter, and you have to exchange her. And that also becomes a very important, important historical, I would say, uh, you know, uh, transition when 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 we start seeing women as some as a, as a body which can be exchanged we start seeing women as a thing as a property which can be exchanged so there are many theories i think uh, which we could retrieve from the scholarship from feminist historians and feminist archaeologists uh, who have been talking a lot about uh, you know uh, even they're, they're even saying that you know this uh, entire notion of that uh, man was the hunter and woman was the gatherer is not necessarily correct. I mean, there are enough evidence that suggests that they were both doing, you know, man was also gathering and woman was also hunting. But we have perceived it and we have started saying it and we are just, and, and why I think it is important because I thought, your, because your research, I really liked it and I thought it is fascinating. And I just thought that this particular part would have enhanced it a little more. That's all from my side. I hope I did not say much. <laughs> I, Thank you. Thank you very much. You have said much. <laughs> and uh, I'm glad because this is, a, uh, this is the kind of role of the discussant. So that has to be said. And uh, if I look at some questions uh, in the chat box, 
I think a lot of questions are um, have the same kind of tenor as you have raised questions, uh, although in a kind of they have raised in terms of that because of the male attitude norms don't change and other kind of things. So, so that is one thing. So I, uh, Arjun, do we have the time to ask uh, questions? I don't think we have the. Uh, you can also have your remarks. Then I will request uh, Dr. Sarangi to answer. Answer yeah, I, actually, okay. I have to leave in three minutes. So I just quickly wanted to respond because I have another Zoom meeting starting at 11. So, so sir, why don't to also leave. here to Professor Kelkar, since ma'am is here. No, but you minutes, have any, any question if you'd like to ask Dr. Sarangi, then so, uh, Arjun, Dr. Sarangi, I can answer. I have a I capsule form question. question. I have a capsule form question. Uh, to, uh, and that is the, because of your time and also because of the uh, general time has gone so much. One is that the economists always talk about the women's work participation and they think that is the process of empowerment. But what is the entitlement that comes from work participation with regard to assets, with regard to control over finances? They don't really, uh, ig uh, they ignore it kind of thing. That is the, let me complete it. Why the question of, land distribution or land in the name of the women is not taken in the analysis. That is what is important. Why do we stop at only at the labor force participation? Labor force participation is essential both for men and women, but entitlement as a result of that would be important. So this was one meta question. Second my meta question is, I really don't believe that um, um, uh, norm, I do some work on norms. Norms are sticky. Norms are sticky because we don't we don't question them. That is the, that's why they are sticky. Norms have been changing. We have changed the norm of sati, uh, widow warning in India. We have changed the question of kind of caste, the kind of untouchability. Norms have been addressed. Why, when it comes to gender relations? then we think that, oh, norms are sticky and it will take time to get unsticky to them. So, and in fact, we need a kind of unlearning the whole process, the way we have learned things. So, and these are the, this was the, uh, my second question was. Third question is that how do we address the cultures? We need to critique cultures. What is, I mean, that does not mean that every aspect in the culture is bad. But whatever the adverse aspect of the culture is, we need to address this. We need to prove through quantitative methods and we need to do that with the qualitative methods. So women's voices, the people who hear, whether they are hunter, I completely agree with them. Priyadarshini um, um, about uh, that women have been the hunters. I mean, I, I uh, carried a chapter in a book edited by that, that how women were hunters. So in India, I'm talking about and not very long time ago. So with these questions, but presentation has been wonderful. And um, uh, as an economist, you have done tremendous job, but we need to raise really some serious questions, even on the, these presentations from the gender point of view. I think we need to change, need to change the paradigm shift. Thank you very much. I, that has been a great- Very quick. So I will very quickly say a few things because I need to be at the other meeting. So um, very quickly, I don't disagree with what you're saying. Uh, I also will say that we cannot do everything. We have our own skills and we have our own strengths. Uh, qualitative work is not one of uh, our strengths. Data is not available. Uh, I think uh, we are not saying that redistribution of land is not important. 
in fact, we are not even uh, saying that it is an issue here. What all we are trying to point out here is that, uh, look, there are things that can happen in the past that can affect present outcomes, okay? Um, and then one of the things you, uh, I think both of you talk about is um, the fact that, um, you know, uh, I think that there is too much emphasis that is paid to uh, labor force participation and not property rights. And uh, there is there's no question about that, but one way to think about property rights is to control for the institutional setup. Uh, and there is a way to talk about, if we want to do a cross-country comparison, this, this kind of questions, in fact, what we are saying is that these kinds of questions can only be answered either through qualitative work or a within country approach. You cannot do this cross country. In a cross country framework, you have absolutely no of addressing these kinds of questions because you need data on these types of resources then on a lot of countries in the world, which is just simply not available. So uh, with that, I will pass the baton to Chandan and let him deal with the answers because I'm sorry, I have to chair the other meeting. So already the meeting must have started. So thank you all for this opportunity and uh, I will catch up with all of you at some later point. Thank you. This was very, very good. Extremely kind of thing, <laughs> Professor Sarangi. The, I am really sad that you are leaving. I mean, I, we wanted you to be there uh, or we will not probably continue for another five minutes, seven minutes. Yes, and yes. I'm economists are usually busy. <laughs> yeah. I, I want you to complete my question also. Yeah, please. So, I, we will take yes. uh, more yes. more of the feedback of time. Take as much time. I'm free. Yes, because man has really worked on the economic dimension sure. in Southeast Asia, China, other parts of the world. So very good question for us as an economist. And, and you know, another thing that I would like to add here, ma'am, before you give your question, actually, this is, uh, you know, I mean, I usually work in corruption. This is like, you know, I, I ventured into this area just, you know, this is only my second paper in gender, gender, gender inequality. So obviously I am fascinated by it because, you know, I was born in a small village in Bihar. So I have seen gender inequality just like everyone else, you know. I have seen that in my own family. I have seen that in my own society, right? Actually, that was one of the motivation uh, to work on that, you know. And so a lot of this stuff that you said, you know, and we totally agree with that. But, you know, again, you know, we are... It, it just, it's the journey that had just started, you know, and, uh, you know, so anyway, so yeah, please go ahead and then, then I'll, I'll, I'll take that question. Yeah. Yes, go ahead. No, uh, uh, can I be called each other by name, Chandan? Yes, okay. please, of course. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Okay. Not because you are young. I, I respect as much as a professor, but just the two used to, I, I call Arjun also, so all this. No, no, yeah, yeah. I, no, no problem. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going you are also okay. young. So I wanted to say that if you... Yes, Ma'am, you are also young. We, <laughs> Thank you. With your enthusiasm, we were. So call me Govind. Okay. Yes. I wanted to really put, why don't we put norms? How the norm change at the UN level? I have worked at the UN, that's what I'm saying. How the whole sustainable development goals? Can you put that prism? Okay. Uh, goal one, which is the poverty reduction, goal two, food security, goal three, women's empowerment. They say you cannot achieve, you don't, talk, we cannot talk of poverty unless we give land rights to women. And that is one thing. Food security you cannot achieve unless women have the right to land. And we are talking here unmediated, right? Not through the 
household and uh, and its head so these are the questions that are being fundamentally questioned and you know that your whole un system and whole world bank and imf they are hardcore economists who are talking about this that is the kind of, so it is not question of discipline it is a question of reality also that we need to address that is what i my concern would be so i wanted to really raise the questions i mean your methods have been perfect final kind of thing i did not want to really uh, raise on this i am a qualitative researcher so i want to go on the kind of statistical analysis but i wanted to really raise these fundamental questions in terms of the when we study the society and when we any society uh, uh, i mean amartya sen is a very good example as an economist why he talked about the missing women he could have also kind of thing what are the fundamental reason and will my last point will china's inequality change with now they are going for the three children policy and recently they have pushed for the three children policy because they think their population is aging and then they are asking women to sit at home to go back home they are not uh, taking them in employment now these kind of contradictory trend we need to really realize that what are this their implication on gender inequality and um, so our histories do not end at a particular period histories have continuities and this is the whole question of political economy that we need to be concerned about that is the thing that i wanted to say i have many questions but i i don't think i'm going to discuss that i in all these three questions that i have uh, i wanted to sum up my questions thank you chandan chandan sir let me also add one more dimension to it that uh, in recent times uh, as i work on housing infrastructure uh, uh, women for earlier indira avas yojana and rajiv avas yojana now we call pradhan mantri avas yojana some movement there in the property as ma'am was saying land uh, for agriculture sector really important but for others there has been some push that if it is born goes in women's name uh, there is some relaxation there has been some push how do you see the 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 issues ma'am is highlighting the how to also move forward we also have something called swami it is the land record and other things uh, learning from other parts of the world yes thank you no so actually ma'am i i really appreciate your comments because you know as i said you know uh, for me it it is a, it has a journey just that has just begun right and so when when i hear when i hear uh, comments from you right and when i i hear things like that that actually sort of gives me uh, you know you know that that's that sometimes gives gives me the new next project right that okay can i can i try to answer some of this question right because as you, because as professor sarangi mentioned we are not qualitative researchers right we are we are you know quantitative researchers so but good thing about you know that's good thing about economics right economics is a social science and economics is also sometimes you know known as pure science right so the, the benefit of social science and i consider myself as a social scientist you know so 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 that is the advantage that that i get when i when i present it at a you know at an audience like you when you bring this kind of issues right then my mind always works is there a way that i could quantitative i could quantitatively you know to quantitatively prove that right because that is where my my, my strength lies you know yeah. now coming back to uh, the the land rights yes land right is very important and interestingly interesting that you brought it up because somewhat related and as i said you know i have just ventured into this area in one of uh, the work in progress actually i have another co-author where we are we are looking at that it does does mother's property ownership can explain daughter's property ownership 
you see so again these are the things this this goes to your right side that why isn't land you know registered in the name of mother right so you know one of the ways is that if if something like these things work then all we need all we need is to start that kind of you know norm right so maybe next time when my father is going to transfer the property right well he he can transfer not in my name but you know in my you know even my wife's name, let's say, for example, even if we just stick with that patriarchal culture, right? Or he could distribute to, to all my brothers and sisters, you know, equally. So, so these are obviously very, very deep-rooted, deep-rooted norms, and that defies many of the policies that are taken by the government. And, you know, uh, for example, uh, there was a news that I read a couple of, uh, couple of uh, you know, I think now a couple of years ago, uh, and one can verify that apparently sex ratio is against women in 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 more educated districts in Punjab, right? Yeah. So 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 these deep rooted cultural norms, right? They are not. Sometimes we just presume that. Sometimes we just presume that you know that education is panacea of all the evils, right? Once people get literate or educated, this thing will go away. No, we cannot presume that this thing will go away, right? We have to we have to work for that. Uh, we have to create you know like you know uh, the awareness, right? And the policies will have to target that rather than just you know mandating something. Yeah. No, no, you are very right, but. Uh... You are putting now your theory on its head, the resource constraint. I mean, the highest sex, uh, sex uh, uh, ratio, I mean, discrimination is really in South Delhi, which is so, so resourceful. So it is really the managed to see that resource constraint does not really cause this problem. There is something deeper than that. Historical antiquity, one may kind of, uh, we can go ahead with it, yes. but not really as we developed. And there are there have been periods for which you don't have data where, where a lot of political things happened. I mean, in China, particularly where we studied, 60s were in the turmoil, 50s were in the turmoil. No, no, there was no question of data collection. But even in India, where we have the data collection, we completely ignore that. Statistically, we need to ask why there is no data on women's land rights. How many women own land? I mean, what? So this is the gender blindness that is created in terms of the data. So how the science becomes blind? And they say that the government of India says that in the UN, when they go to report, we cannot report on the women's land rights because we don't have the data. But the question is that. Uh, of course, in those circles, it will not be asked, why don't you have the data? But as citizens, we can ask that you are so good in statistical analysis. Why don't you have the data on land rights kind of thing? That is no, that. So you know, these are very pertinent questions. And as you said, these are political economy questions, right? These are political economy questions. You know, these are very pertinent questions. Uh, and you know, yes, you know, they should be looked into. They, they these are, uh, you know, they should be looked into. Uh, maybe I will look at them someday. Uh, you know, uh, but uh, you know, right now, uh, you know, we 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 have not ventured into into that area. But you know, that that is very important because unless we recognize that there is a problem, right? Uh, how how do we, how do we how are we going to provide a solution? <laughs> so in that sense, by the way. Uh, that uh, that judgment by the Supreme Court was, you know, was uh, commendable, right? That the daughters should also have the, you know, rights, you know, on ancestral property. Yeah. yeah. Hindu Succession Amendment Act, Act it changed yes. in 2005. 
But, 2012, exactly. Yeah, but it is not really implemented because of the norms, the gender norms that you ta yeah. talked about so beautifully. Thank totally, you very yes. much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Arjun, uh, now you lead the discussion and uh, <laughs> I think we need to be kind with the <laughs> speakers. <laughs> in terms very of late. Would you like to have any final word in like one minute to what do you want to add to today's deliberation? Please unmute yourself, Dr. Panda. Uh, I think I have made my comments. I know like, look, uh, both, uh, you know, I think this is fascinating research as a Dr. Sarangi said, you know, like, look, uh, I believe is that, okay, educating people is very important, but, you know, like as also Shandan said, uh, where there is a lot of educated people are also educated district have higher inequality, gender inequality. So basically I said, you know, like the incentive structure to have more women, giving, giving women more power in terms of economic opportunity, land, you know, inheritance rights, and that's going to change having them more uh, has a similar footing uh, comparison to the male is going to be more important than anything else. So the, in, in one way, how we can incentivize that and bring more to the equal footing that is more important. Once they are in the equal footing, probably things are going to automatically, not automatically, it's going to change the mindset and uh, things are going to change. Because I don't, I, I have a feeling is that, you know, like I will tell you uh, a very anecdotal experience. I think my campus is the most, uh, productive campus. The reason is that we have a chancellor who is a woman. We have a, a vice chancellor of academic dean who is a woman. We have a division chair who is a woman. One of the fortunate campuses we have and one of the productive campuses. So I'm, I take very pride in that. So I think it's having more opportunities is very important. Good, thank you. And Amita, ma'am, would you like to have some words? Yeah. Yes, I'll be really honest and you know, uh, when I uh, saw the message from the ca invitation card from uh, Arjun, I jokingly asked him that uh, it's on gender inequality and why there is a manual. So <laughs> then he said that, no, 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 you are there and Govind ma'am is there. So uh, I, I came with like, you know, I really prepared myself that no, I should not be biased and I should hear. Uh, and I hope I was not biased, but at the same time, I really thought the point uh, what, uh, Professor Kelkar has raised is, is extremely important because, you know, when we talk about gender, we tend to focus too much on culture and norm. And by doing that, they also make societies responsible for their own oppression. Whereas there are larger issues, the state, state might be responsible for it. There are many global policies that are responsible for marginalizing uh, deprived communities already, you know, deepening of divide is happening a lot with changing dynamics or changing historical events. For instance, COVID. I mean, last year, uh, I mean, there's a wide gender gap and 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 gap across many other, uh, you know, uh, indicators. We are seeing that it is deepening in India and many other parts of the world. So I think we cannot afford to miss historical you know, very significant historical events like globalization, industrial revolution. Uh, even in India, if we are talking about Eastern part of India, the place where we live, I'm also from Bihar, uh, Bengal presidency, uh, we need to talk about Punar Jagran and how the, how the idea of, na how the nationalist movement started and how within the nationalist movement, uh, the question of women becomes central and how Sati debate was probably the only modern debate which was based on ancient scriptures. 
so the the idea was to see if shastra kehte hain ki nahi ki aurat ka jalana theek hai ki nahi aurat ka jalana theek hai ya nahi that was not the question the question was what is the ancient scriptures are saying so these are some of the points i think um, we 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 just need to look at when we are talking about historical origin of gender that's that's all i have to say so, thank you so, so much like it was really good so, so i would like to just add one thing here is that one uh, i think one is that you know this is something that uh, well actually men are you know for patriarchy right obviously men are responsible for that right and so you know and so so as a man right i think it is my responsibility to contribute towards that right uh, and you know and not just responsibility you know it is it is accountability right and two other thing that i would like to just add here is that i do want to hold society responsible for that right just like the government is responsible because ultimately right see as i said you know this is both the things this is as much uh, you know a part of culture as it is political economy right and so for example the government of india i have been hearing that for a long time read right, that women should be provided one third quota in parliament right it didn't happen it hasn't happened yet and i'm sure that you might have heard this news like 15 years ago at least 10 years ago i am following that news right so what i'm saying is that you know there are so many things that are important cultures are important institutions are important government is important and again i'm fascinated by the the, the, the things that that you brought up right because you know that does show me right that you are you are an expert on on gender right uh, you know what we wanted to and what we are doing here is that we are showing that okay look there is this something called historical resource scarcity right that played some part it's maybe just it can explain only 5% of gender inequality right but you know that is the part that that we want to contribute uh, you know in this and i hope that you 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 thought that it was worthy uh, you know of of you know of investigation definitely undoubtedly 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 and Obviously, you will be able to do the kind of thing that things that are happening uh, that yes. is are uh, definitely and govind ma'am let me add that on social media and everywhere since ma'am is sharing also our center and this gender gap series people have been asking that why only women why no men in your gender program gender is no women because uh, my organization is also led by women so all the panelists in gender gaps you will see only women and when this comes then anamika i'm asking why men <laughs> so i asked why manal <laughs> why manal but i said that no when i was there and we'll look into all the aspects i yes. was to uh, i was to a participate in a speaking session i had in the un on energy i put aside because i thought i'll give importance to this because here is the kind of people talking about gender equality and economist and men The yes. economist man kind of thing yes. that is what and i cannot tell you being an economist how upfront both our speakers today has been using the uh, econometric resources no one comes so much forthcoming even for employment inequality income for that kind of disparity also people or top economists don't come forward but both of our speakers today have uh, really contributed so much to advancing uh, knowledge in this field as dr jawas also Uh, suggesting but uh, before that uh, uh, going ma'am would you like to uh, have some final words two three minutes to conclude on this very important topic no, uh, no go ahead uh, uh, i have whatever i have to say i said except right. it has been wonderful kind of discussion and uh, chandan i hope you took it very nicely yeah. uh, the critique it is a openness that uh, really impresses kind of thing 
and of course the convey this kind of feeling to professor sarangi also because we even get together then probably idea is to uh, discuss like um, uh, scientist or discuss, discuss yes. like uh, uh, social scientists and not absolutely. really uh, i mean we were polite but uh, no absolutely not as i said you know for me position is not should be not at the cost of this kind of politeness and you took it that way that was that yeah, of course that absolutely is very no i see i again take it as a as as you know as something that i can do going forward right mm -hmm. i mean research is a process right so you know and that's why when when i present something like you know at an audience like you so that's why actually this is one of our strategy has been that we will present our gender kind of work not just to economists but also to you know like people who really know about the intricacies of gender you know and i am not you know i mean i'm not ashamed to 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 accept this that you know my knowledge of this gender these intricacies is a lot more limited than yours than yours and so you know as as a student of economics right as a student of development right or more broadly as a student of social sciences right i i want to learn that you know and and you know and you know going forward i want to contribute more you know so that's how i see it and you have provided like some really good food for thought so i truly appreciate that thank you thank you so let me just sum up and uh, uh, thank you everyone and on behalf of our gender impact study center at impre impact and policy research institute uh, we thank you all for joining for our series the state of gender equality has tax gender gaps which is being chaired by uh, professor govind kelkar ma'am and today's talk on historical determinants of gender equality inequality having uh, really the economist point of view i must add now uh, by our speakers today dr chandan jha and professor sudipta sarangi sir and we also have a, a center generation alpha data center uh, where we look into all these things with c3 where anamika ma'am Uh, currently works with with them also we did some time use survey various rcts and chandan sir i would invite you to also contribute to some of the other works sorry yes no thank you thank you very much arjun for yes. for this for, this was really good so that because many of our young talents especially from bachelors uh, uh, indian ba students are fantastic if you'll give them they will beat like any i would say american or chinese any day given the good resources so these new techniques people are really experimenting we'll see what we can do but really uh, adding to the evidence and all these things uh, really forthcoming and i would say very humble economist kind of approach both our speakers have taken so thank you so much and we all congratulate you for this very important work focusing on india and i would really like to thank our discussants for today uh, dr uh, anamika apridashni ma'am and uh, dr vibhudata panda sir thank you for joining uh, so early and so late <laughs> for both of you in the end that and so and i would really like to thank uh, professor govind kelkar ma'am uh, to chair this session and also chair the series ma'am also chairs our uh, gender gap series and uh, Uh, thank you for leading to this very interesting. I would say people are working in so much of different geography, and we uh, somehow collide together to learn and uh, uh, propagate more of what we profess. So thank you, everyone, and uh, have a good day and good night. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Arjun. Thank you, Chandan. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Govind. I'm almost here. Good night. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yes.